this podcast was first broadcast on Mix 92.6. Go to Mix92.6.com to find more Environment Matters podcasts. And if you enjoy what we do, to find out how you can support the station, which is run entirely by volunteers. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Environment Matters with me, Amanda Yorworth. Environment Matters is the show that brings you news on issues of sustainability and the environment from around Hertfordshire and from further afield. Well, it really does feel like spring now. After a few false starts, feels like things are really underway. Snowdrops have been out for a while, crocuses are popping up, and now they're being joined by the daffodils. And you can't just see the difference, you can hear it as well. All of a sudden, I've started to notice birdsong. Now, the robins in particular seem to be singing their little socks off. And I don't know what it is about birdsong, but I just think it is one of the most uplifting and beautiful sounds that there is. But it's a song that is slowly being lost. The RSPB says that there has been a serious countrywide decline in the number of many birds, including many well-known and loved species such as song thrushes, skylarks, lapwings and house sparrows. Populations of the ever-cheery house sparrow have fallen by 70% since the 1970s, with a loss of 10.7 million pairs. Now, they're depressing figures, aren't they? But scientists at the University of Sussex think that they found some easy but effective things that we can all do to help stop this decline. Research by PhD student Canel Cassandra Montague and Professor David Goulson looked into the effect of a number of factors, including pesticide use, on garden bird populations. I spoke to friend of the show, Professor David Goulson, to find out more. Professor Goulson, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Now, given that the RSPB reports that the biggest declines in birds has been in farmland birds, why do you think our gardens are so important for for wildlife like birds? Uh, well, I, in a way, um, precisely because of that, you know, not much, most of us can't do much about the way farmers farm, but we can control our gardens and our gardens can be a refuge from intensive agriculture. They can be be wildlife friendly. And, and they're an area that, you know, we, we have the power to do something. And if lots of people did, there are a lot of gardens, you know, roughly 22 million gardens in the UK, covering an area of about 400,000 hectares, which is, is a lot of land. It's bigger than all of our national parks. So if they were all managed in a wildlife friendly way, that would, you know, it, it's not going to save the planet, but it would be a really nice step in the right direction. OK. And why the pesticides? Why did you particularly, you and your colleague, um, Canel, why did you decide to look into those, given that, you know, we're assured that pesticides are all safe. So why did you look into those? Well, the, the notion that all pesticides are safe is is if you don't mind my saying, it's slightly naive. If you had a time machine and went back to the 1950s and 60s, then we were told that DDT was safe uh, because it was widely used. And it turned out it wasn't at all safe. And later on, we discovered that organophosphates we'd been told were safe, weren't safe. And then it was the neonicotinoid insecticides that we discovered weren't safe and so on. So if you look at history, we repeatedly have made mistakes with allowing chemicals to be used and then often decades later, realising they're doing some sort of harm to the environment or to us or, or whatever. So I think, you know, if we, if we 
learn from that lesson, there's a reasonable chance that pesticides we're spraying around in our gardens uh, might not be quite as harmless as as, as we might um, think. So you and your colleague, as I say, Canel Cassandra Montague, you looked into pesticides and, and gardens and the, the effect that it's had. Can you just tell us how, how you went about this bit of research? Uh, yeah. So first of all, I should stress that it's, it's Canel's PhD. So she did the bulk of the work. I just supervised her. Uh, so she deserves the credit. It's actually piggybacking on a huge amount of data that's organised and collected by the British Trust for Ornithology as part of their Garden Bird Watch scheme, in which thousands of garden owners count and identify the birds in their gardens uh, every week or every fortnight and report the data. And some of them have been doing this for many years. So it's a huge data set from all around the UK on the birds. And uh, what we did was then ask those gardeners questions about their garden and how they managed it and what pesticides they used. And we then analysed the bird data to see if the way gardens were managed explained how many birds people were seeing in their gardens. Okay. Now, you asked the contributors whether they used pesticides. Could you tell us roughly about the numbers that did use pesticides and whether you were surprised by those numbers? Yeah, so um, I guess that actually I think the numbers were lower than I expected, but then uh, we probably have a non-random sample of people because they're all keen bird watchers, so they probably are less likely to use pesticides than the average gardener, I would guess. We found that just over 30% of gardeners were using some kind of pesticide, and there were quite a range being used, but by far the commonest were were herbicides, usually uh, ones based on a, a chemical called glyphosate. That 30% to me, as you say, amongst a group of people who were obviously concerned enough about wildlife to, to be counting birds in their garden, did, did seem like quite a, quite a number, but you thought it might be even higher than that. Well, I think probably the, the gardening average is higher. I mean, you've only got to see how many pesticides are on sale in your local garden centre to realise there's a big market there. Clearly, somebody's using them. So I, I think probably if one could get a, a truly representative figure, it, it would be higher than 30%. But it's difficult to do that. And, and there's no readily available data. That, so farmers are obliged to, to record pesticide use and defra collate figures and publish them. But nobody routinely records sales or use by gardeners uh, or homeowners of, uh, or the council of pesticides in urban areas, unfortunately. Yeah, okay. Now, you singled out house sparrows for particular investigation. Why was that? Well, we actually looked at all the all the common species, the, all the species for which we had a reasonable sized data set. So we didn't especially target house sparrows, but they are an interesting species because they have undergone massive declines. They used to be the commonest bird in, in Britain and they've declined by about 70 percent uh, in recent decades and completely disappeared from some urban areas. So we were interested to see what, what we would find. And as it turns out, the house sparrow was the species that seemed to be responding most strongly to pesticide use, or at least we found that gardens that didn't use pesticides had significantly more sparrows than ones that did. So you mentioned the herbicide glyphosate. Which other pesticides were commonly used and seemed to be affecting wildlife? 
the two that gave the strongest effect were glyphosate and the the, the slug pellets based on metaldehyde, the old blue slug pellets, which and those were the the two most used pesticides by gardeners. There were also a range of insecticides used, but rather less commonly. Uh, and some of those were associated with with small bird de- uh, small amounts of bird decline as well. And how big was the effect that use of those pesticides had on bird populations? Well, so overall, gardeners who used any kind of pesticide had on average 12% fewer sparrows, house sparrows. Um, But if you look particularly at glyphosate-based herbicides, then gardeners using those had 25% fewer sparrows and gardeners using the slug pellets had 40% fewer sparrows. So quite a big difference. Yeah, those numbers are really quite amazing. I mean, I'm quite intrigued by the effect of the slug pellets on sparrows, given that, if my understanding is correct, sparrows don't eat slugs, they eat seeds. So can you think of why that connection might be there? It's it's puzzling. I mean, we didn't investigate the mechanism. Obviously, pesticides, in theory, could be directly poisoning wildlife, and the metaldehyde slug pellets are quite toxic to a range of of wildlife but how sparrows could be consuming them or indirectly consuming things that had consumed the pellets is not clear they do eat insects as well as seeds they're sort of fairly flexible about what they'll eat particularly in the breeding season Um, but they don't ordinarily eat slugs as you say so we don't know is the honest truth with the glyphosate herbicides it's it's more easy to imagine a connection because uh, a, a tidy garden that's with lots of herbicide use is going to have fewer weeds, which means fewer seeds, which uh, sparrows would feed on. So, so there, it's 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 much easier to to see how that effect could come about. Right. Okay. So, what do you think's the take home message from it? Is it just that we should stop using these pesticides, or is it that we need to embrace the slugs and the weeds? <laughs> well. Personally, um, I have said for many years we should ban pesticides in gardens and in urban areas. Uh, we just don't need them. Um, you know, I garden organically, have done for donkey's years. I don't exactly embrace slugs. I still find them slightly irritating, but I find that I encourage natural enemies of slugs. I have lots of ground beetles and which, which wolf down the slugs, so I don't have too big a slug problem. And there are literally hundreds of towns around the world that have gone pesticide free. France in its entirety uh, banned pesticide use in urban areas in 2018. So it's not an outlandish thing to suggest that we can do. Uh, Paris is still standing with no pesticides and hasn't been overrun by dandelions or cockroaches or something. So I personally would like us to learn a lesson from that. Okay, so that sounds like it's something quite easy that we can all do, just leaving the pesticides out and, you know, carrying on guarding without them. That shouldn't be, as you say, perhaps save ourselves a penny or two there. So you also looked at the effect of provision of other bird-friendly habitat in the garden. What kind of thing were you interested in in particular? Yeah, well, we wanted to find out more broadly, not not just what effect pesticides had, but what other factors affected how many garden birds people found. And so we looked at the, where the garden was, whether it was in the countryside or in the town, what habit, how much sort of bird-friendly habitat there was outside the garden, but nearby, 
and also what the gardener was doing himself, what what features the gardens had that might benefit birds, things like um, native shrubs and trees, berry-bearing bushes, ponds, shaggy unmown lawns, the, the usual things which we know are good for wildlife. And so we found some things that are pretty, well, most of the results were exactly what you'd predict. Gardens in rural areas tended to have more diversity of birds and more birds, which isn't terribly useful to most of us because you can't move your garden terribly easily. But more interestingly, or, or more encouragingly for gardeners, we found there was a really big effect of uh, sort of wildlife features in the garden. If you have lots of those things I, I mentioned, you can expect to see many more birds. And actually, the the effect of that was bigger than the effect of using pesticides. Um, but the, the take home for me is that if you put in some things to encourage wildlife, grow some shrubs and trees and native wildflowers and put in a pond and don't use pesticides, put it all together, then you can have a really big positive effect on, on the wildlife of your garden. And how about trying to make that bigger landscape that you also found was useful in the countryside? Do you think it's possible to create that in urban areas by encouraging lots of gardeners to take on these practices? I, I mean, that's my sort of dream. I'm quite keen on wildlife gardening. I've written books about wildlife gardening. Uh, the Garden Jungle is one of them. And, you know, as I mentioned, there are a lot of gardens and they cover a big area. And if we could also get, as well as getting lots of gardeners gardening for wildlife, if we could get the local councils on board so that there were wildflowers and in in parks and cemeteries and the road verges weren't cut so often and the roundabouts were planted with wildflowers and so on, then put that all together and, you know, that could be a sort of national network of wildlife-friendly habitat. And uh, that that's, that's my dream, but I've uh, got a bit of a way to go. That sounds that sounds like a, a dream worth having. It sounds lovely. And just to finish off, um, citizen science, do you think that this could play a bigger role in research in the future? It, it is playing a bigger role every year, actually. I mean, it's the use of citizen science has really taken off. Um, and there are all sorts of interesting projects. They, they enable us to gather data on a, a, a huge scale, a scale that we couldn't, you know, if scientists had to go and count birds themselves, we could only visit a few dozen gardens, but we can we can get data from thousands of gardens from the public. So it, it, it enables uh, us to, to get good data on a big scale. But at the same time, the sort of dual benefit is it encourages people to engage with nature and think about you know the factors that might affect the birds in their garden or whatever and so it helps to connect people with nature which i think is is all is perhaps just as important as the science brilliant professor gulson thank you very much indeed for telling us about that it was a pleasure I was talking there to Professor David Goulson of the School of Life Sciences at the University of Sussex. Now, I think that he'd approve of the projects that we're going to hear about in next week's show. Rebecca Paness of Sandridge Parish Council will be telling us how they hope to turn Sandridge into a patchwork of meadows for pollinators. And Nick Sheriff, Parks Manager at St Albans District Council, will explain how they're helping pollinators around St Albans District. Now, if you'd like to act on some of the points that Professor 
Professor Goulson raised, then there's some great local groups and resources that you might find helpful. To start off with, take a look at wilderhoodwatch.org. Now, their idea is to work on a project at a street level, working with neighbours to make a wider environment that's good for wildlife. The Wilderhood Watch actively encourage other streets to follow their lead and to set up things like hedgehog streets, pollinator highways, toad roads and much more. Take a look at the project's page of their website to see what groups of neighbours just like you can achieve and get some inspiration to see what you could do, not just to make your own garden a wildlife haven, but to create that wildlife-friendly landscape that Professor Goulston says we need. Also, take a look at Wilder St Albans. Now, this is a partnership between the Hearts of Middlesex Wildlife Trust and St Albans District Council, and it encourages everyone to do something wild and plot it on their Wilder map again to get to work on embedding features for nature throughout the landscape. And one of the projects that the Wilderhood Watch and Wilder St Albans are working on together is glyphosate-free streets, where neighbours opt to handweed their streets rather than having it routinely spread with glyphosate weed killer by Hearts County Council. And from what Professor Goulson's team has found out, it looks like this could be a really important way that we could help wildlife. Get in touch with Wilder St Albans if you'd like to take part with your street. And you can hear about all of these projects in previous episodes of Environment Matters, all of which are in podcast form and ready for you to listen at your leisure on the podcast page of Mix92.6.com. I'll be with you at the same time next week, but until then, thank you for listening.